c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. to histories and mysteries i'm jessica and i'm a very sweaty janelle i am likewise but not well no i'm not a very sweaty janelle but i am very sweaty and i think that's the (laughs) that's the glue that bonds this podcast together i'm i'm in the middle of a heat wave you're just in a closet i'm just getting roasted by the wrath of mother earth you're just getting roasted by the fact you can't afford a larger recording studio yeah, I'm just I'm just getting hot boxed by my own own endomorphy. I am I've been cursed with a mammalian metabolism and I'm going to die here. <laughs> yeah, so if you just hear a thump and then there's only one host after that, it's fine. One of us is dead. Yeah. But it's fine. Janelle has the notes for today, so she'll be able to soldier on. Do you know what else is unhealthy? Get Max murdered. That's not my best segue, but it's the one we're going to do. <laughs> I mean, think of all the people you've known who've been hit 11 to 19 times in the head with an axe. What are they doing now? Think about it. Not doing so well. <laughs> not the picture of health. <laughs> no one's jealous of the one former classmate who comes to the 20-year reunion with an axe wound. <laughs> what kind of high school did you fucking go to? <laughs> I have a baby. I have a mortgage. I have a split in my skull. You know, no one's jealous, okay? In fairness, you went to high school in Grand Prairie, Alberta. I feel like there's a real chance somebody has a woodcutting injury. In fairness, I was homeschooled. <laughs> then it's even worse <laughs> if somebody comes to the high school reunion with a uh, with a woodcutting injury you didn't know about. <laughs> I, I, I'd be surprised why they wouldn't bring it up over the family group chat <laughs> <laughs> this feels like something I should have been looped in on well you know you might end up a suspect for it just like uh, Lizzie Borden was a suspect in her family's murders I'm not doing well for transitions it's very hot out <laughs> that's, that's the best you're gonna get from me I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna say no patricide on that one it's my version of no homo for this episode no patricide no patricide. Your parents listen to this, so not the place to plan their murders. Uh, do that offline. Don't worry, Dad. I'm not going to kill you. I mean, don't worry, Mom. I'm not going to kill Dad. Dad doesn't listen to this. I hope Dad doesn't listen to this. <laughs> he already finds me confusing enough. <laughs> He's just like, I don't. I, I want no part of your little tape recorder project. Absolutely not. <laughs> I created you, but I do not understand you. Is this what it means to be God? <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a day in the life of your father. Um, <laughs> wonderful. My parents don't listen to this because they can't figure out how. <laughs> but where we left off last week with part one, we had gotten to all of the murder and bits. The, uh, you know, people with their heads split open and their eyes cut in half. Yeah, so the babies won't choke on them. Now we get to what you really want, which is law procedural. Yeah! This is the juicy part. (laughs) Trial transcripts. (laughs) Everybody's favorite. (laughs) Get the stenographer on the phone! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's a reason. 
they don't focus on that too much in true crime cases. It's dull as shit. But incredibly important. This is why trials are more popular than um, appeals. Oh, appeals are boring. They're they're just procedural errors. I don't care that there was a head in her trunk. How did you get it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or in the case of Lizzie Borden, you should find the head first. We'll kind of get into this, but the police work in this case, even by the standards of the day, was kind of a mess. It took the police a really long time to lock down the crime scene, so pretty much everyone in Fall River and their dog tromped through the house and barn in the hours and days after the murders. Even as police were still collecting evidence, they were like, yeah, come on in, walk around, eat their weird room temperature mutton, see if we give a shit. Free food poisoning for everyone. <laughs> there was just friends and family and neighbors and journalists just touching shit, just running around touching stuff. Anyone who had an excuse to get through the door. Yeah, they didn't even take the bodies out. Good, good. We've got an entire Agatha Christie-style murder party. <laughs> Except in this case, it's the reason the murder never gets solved. Uh, or a, a large part of it. Damn it, Poirot. So, the police searched the house on the day of the murders, but they didn't actually remove any of the key evidence from the home until two days later. And the family and one of Lizzie's friends were continuing to live in the house the entire time. <sighs> Police later claimed that Lizzie was the main suspect from the very beginning, but that doesn't seem to be true because apparently a random Portuguese laborer was detained a few hours after the murder. Also, like, you've, you've left her with access to the body. Oh, they're literally on gurneys in the living room. They're just like, hey, sorry your parents got murdered. We'll put them on these handy slabs. Sweet dreams, everybody. Because here's the thing, I understand not moving them the bodies out of the home, but then you move the the live people. No. You move the inhabited bodies. You put them in a hotel. No, it's it's just a sleepover in there. Or like, they're rich, send them to a friend's. No, we just have corpse sleepover in the days following the murders. Pajama party! That would make the pillow fight pretty boring. Yeah, the maid, the uncle, Abby, or not Abby, Abby's dead. I mean, she is there. She's, she's on a slab. Super there. But uh, but she's not exactly making cocoa. No, they're stretched out on boards in the living room. We've got chopped up corpses in the August heat. Oh, this is going to be funky. 30 degree corpse in the living room. Two of them with their heads popped open. We've already broken the, the, the stay fresh seal on these ones. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't think you're allowed in a funeral home after that comment. <laughs> it's alright, people already asked me to leave funerals early <laughs> If you ever find a corpse, you're just like Oh, this one's still sealed Good stuff <laughs> Fresh <laughs> Ooh, is, that, is that a little bit of garlic? Wow, fancy Lemongrass <laughs> Oh, you're so going to jail someday Is that formaldehyde? You, <laughs> you treat me <laughs> Yeah, nobody in your family's allowed to die because you're not allowed to bury them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so police's initial take on the murders was that Abby Borden's attacker had been much larger and taller than her, and they believed that a violent crime like this just had to be a dude crime. Like, they believed a man had to have done this, because in fairness... Statistically, yeah. Yeah, that's that's normally the case. Yeah, most crimes are dude crimes. <laughs> Like, women either go for victims much weaker than them. We poison things. Or they poison them. 
They poison women. Poison. We, we are poisoners. We are. We're a crafty bunch. We want to keep that stay fresh seal intact. That's all. It's weird because, like, assassins are typically depicted as, like, men with knives, but, like, famous assassins historically have been women because they're seen as non-threatening, and the kitchen is where the poison and the food is. It's also where all the knives are. Convenient. (laughs) Uh, Most female murderers, they they usually aim for, like, invalids, children, occasionally a grown-ass man, but, like, usually indirectly. It's improbable. (laughs) <laughs> Not impossible, but improbable. We like to poison and unplug vital medical equipment. Those are our two preferable options. That's the mood. We just unplug you from the wall real quick, like you're an iPad that's finished charging. That's our- We pretend to trip over your <laughs> IV. <laughs> <laughs> We're not really the axe-murdering type, generally speaking. Not that, you know, not taking away from the feminist intrigue of a good axe-murder, but uh, not usually a thing no. they pin on women. No. No. It takes a lot of confidence it's to axe-murder, I feel. An upper body strength. That too. Skulls are hard. I'm not saying that I couldn't axe-murder. I can deadlift my own body weight. I could definitely axe-murder. But, like, I'm under the impression that the average woman struggles to do 20 push-ups, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I will admit to being a little butch. (laughs) I I feel like you wade barefoot in public fountains. What you're capable of is not a good metric (laughs) for what the average woman is capable of. No, not really. (laughs) No, no, it's not. Jessica's like, I'll axe murder anybody. Point me in a direction. Give me an axe and let me go. Don't expect me to buy my own axe, though. This is this is, this is a laborer's economy. This is not a BYOA situation. They, they cost like $40 for a proper axe. Come on. It's very likely that ethnic tensions played a role in this entire investigation, which is something that kind of gets left out of modern narratives. The police who investigated the Borden murders were overwhelmingly Irish immigrants, which was very common at the time. And fun fact, this is a possible origin of the slang term paddy wagon. They were almost all of the cops were Irish immigrants. Yeah, so that's it comes from not from the Irish being arrested. It comes from the Irish doing the arresting, which is kind of fun. Look at that. There was quite a bit of animosity at the time between Americans like the Bordens, who were wealthy Protestant well-to-do Americans, and the Catholic immigrants who lived in the area at the time. And even among the immigrants in the area, there was something of a pecking order where the Americans looked down upon the Irish, the Irish hated the French Canadians, and everybody hated the Portuguese. (laughs) You know, if you hadn't even told me, like, what the order was and just gave me the... I would have picked it correctly. White people are nothing if not consistent. But basically, you know, the first time they were like, well, there's been a violent crime, somebody find a Portuguese. That's that's who we're looking for. I know who it was. (laughs) The Portuguese. They weren't able to blame it on this guy. But then it turned into a totally different kind of tension where they were like, you know what, this is the Americans turning on themselves and it's time they learned a lesson. So, you know, class warfare. So after arriving at the Borden home on August 4th, police conducted a search of the house and questioned all of the people who were present at the time, including Lizzie Borden. Police and prosecutors at the time, as well as many authors who have written about the case in the years since, make the common mistake of putting way too much stock in the way that a person behaves in the aftermath of a traumatic event. You can't tell a lot of about a person by what they do when they freak out. 
No. It's, it's just not, it's not a reliable indicator of anything. One of the things that initially made police suspicious of Lizzie Borden was her demeanor on the day of the murders. Was it that she was overly calm? Almost like she's in shock? Yeah, almost as if. Almost as if she's just seen her dad's brains on the sofa and she's having a hard time coming to terms with that. Yeah, she was strangely calm the day of the murders. She didn't cry. She didn't wail. She was just kind of... Well, this is a problem that a lot of victims and accused run into, where like they either cry too much or too little to the standards that a person who has never been through this has just created on the fly. Yeah, and it's particularly a no-win situation for women, where if they're crying, it's crocodile tears, they're being hysterical, they're being too upset, histrionic. If they're not upset enough, it means, you know, they're cold, they're heartless, they're suspicious. Either way, you're suspicious. Welcome to being a woman, you can't win. Or you're a lesbian. Only lesbians don't cry when their father has been murdered. (laughs) I don't think that is a stereotype. Because they wanted to steal his penis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I think it's right. I think it's just plaid and boots. I don't think that's stereotype right. about lesbians. Steal <laughs> your father's penis. <laughs> Guess which of us is a mental health professional? Take it's it. not <laughs> Jessica. <laughs> I have years of expertise in the mental health system. Just on the other side. <laughs> I'm trying to think about how long it would be take me to get fired if I showed up at work and my first session was just steal your father's penis. Yeah, no, I would. <laughs> Janelle would be on stress leave. Come on, let me do therapy. <laughs> I, I can handle it. Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't trust you to be in therapy as a client. <laughs> oh, no. I, I have genuinely had therapists look up at me. They're just like, I don't know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Hope leaving their eyes. Like uh, another time, I got like free sessions with a psychiatrist because he found me interesting. Um... <laughs> I know for a fact that when therapists go to do like supervision with their own therapists and supervisors, you are the first case they want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> But no, Lizzie also gave strange and sometimes contradictory answers to police's initial questions, and she seemed to have a hard time giving a coherent account and timeline of the day's events. So, for instance, she initially told police she'd heard a noise from inside the house as she was coming back to the barn, and then later said she hadn't heard anything. She also initially said she'd taken her father's shoes off and given him his slippers, but he still had his shoes on when he was found. In fairness to Lizzie on that one, the police would also later testify under oath that uh, his shoes were tied when he was found only for photographs to reveal there were no laces in his shoes. So everybody fucked up on the day. Everybody fucked up with the shoes. Nobody knows where the shoes are. Nobody understands what the shoes are. There's something. There was shoes. Fucked up. There's shoes. Somebody fucked a shoe. I don't think that's the the crime we're worried about in this particular case. (laughs) Different crime. I'd be worried. It's a crime scene. (laughs) And that is a crime, just not the one that took place here. So a couple things to note on Lizzie's strange demeanor at the scene. Firstly, Dr. Bowden testified that when he arrived on the scene, he gave Lizzie a double dose of morphine to calm her womanly nerves after discovering her barons' mutilated bodies. Nice of you. Right? I'd like to see anybody try displaying the correct emotions after you've been drugged to the absolute tits with morphine. 
I don't think you can give a coherent story when you're looking at the rainbows around the lights. I don't I don't think you're in a good place for that. <laughs> uh, just a couple ounces of black tar, that'll help clear her memory. But secondly, and we've already touched on this, but most and most importantly, the way that a person behaves after a traumatic experience is a terrible way to judge innocence or guilt. I went to school for so long for this. So long. Uh, trust me on this one. Take my word for this. Uh, research consistently shows a person's behavior after a traumatic incident like a death or a murder is a terrible predictor of that person's involvement in the crime. Shock looks very different to different people, and you really don't know how you're going to react to something traumatic until you're there in the moment. So while some people will do the expected thing of just sort of melting down or freaking out, people will go numb... Some people will just sort of try to do everything in their power to carry on like nothing's happened. So you have stories of people like somebody has just died in some horrific way and they're trying to like clean the countertops and make coffee for everybody because they just can't stop. Brains just kind of misfire when something really bad happens. People can cycle between various reactions. There's, there's really no typical reaction that conveys innocence and no typical reaction that conveys guilt. Other than, like, I did it while covered in blood. That one's that one's a giveaway. Everything else is not. Pretty clear. Although the last time we, 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 we talked about a dude who was covered in blood and screaming about how he did it, he actually did get a retrial. But that was the dude <laughs> who, like, had a psychotic break on mushrooms and was screaming about Satan. <laughs> yeah, that, that one, he physically did it. Mentally, he was on vacation. An emotional presentation at the scene of a crime is actually one of the leading factors in the wrongful conviction of women in particular. Studies of exonerated women find that women are often punished for not behaving in the expected way at the death of a loved one. This is often the basis of a criminal case against them, or what causes police to open an investigation in the first place, even when there's no other evidence that they did anything. Both too little grief and too much grief are often viewed as suspicious and can trigger a criminal investigation. Here's a fun little horrifying statistic, completely unrelated to the Lizzie Borden case, but it's troubling. Two-thirds of exonerations of women in the United States occur in cases where no crime was committed at all. <laughs> it's so horrifying, you kind of have to laugh. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, what happens all the time is that, like, a, a child will die of natural causes or an accident. Oh, the woman no. at the scene will not react in the way that people expect her to react and so they will open a criminal investigation on that basis alone oh that is just a fuck barrel of trauma it is a fuck barrel of trauma yeah did you kill your child ah did you kill your child ah <laughs> when police respond to things like sids or like just other medical emergencies or, or accidents if the mother is not reacting the way that they think if she's showing too little grief if she's showing too much grief if your child was eaten by a dingo that's a real case that happened so a lot of women go to jail not only are they not the guilty person there is no guilty person they go to jail for no crime at all their child dies of natural causes and or somebody in their life dies of natural causes and they go to prison for it because they weren't sad enough at the scene Again, not Lizzie Borden's situation. In this case, that this was very much not, not natural causes. You could not find a cause less natural than this. No, people's heads do not naturally explode. 
I mean, you don't know that. You weren't there. <laughs> I mean, it would be it would be a huge coincidence. Strange, axe wound shaped anaphylaxis. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. Stop At it. At least we have a few more checks and balances now, but there's still a basic problem of cognitive bias. Where the moment you start feeling suspicious of somebody, and you start only looking for evidence that implicates them. Well, and you have to remember that something like 98% of cases never go to trial. They will open an investigation on a woman based on whatever, based on the fact that she's acting fishy at the scene. Or they think she is. Yeah, she's vulnerable. She's vulnerable. They often, they're more likely to go after poor women, women of color, women who are marginalized in some way, women who are neurodivergent or disabled in some way. They tell her, you know, you're going to face life in prison or you're going to face the death penalty if you fight this. If you plead guilty, we'll give you eight years for manslaughter. So a lot of these cases never go to trial. They never examine the evidence, so it's basically, you're acting weird at the scene, we're pressing charges, you're being press-ganged into accepting a plea deal. You don't need a medical examiner in front of a judge. We don't get to that point. We we plead out, which is how most cases end. It's tentatively starting to get better. We're starting to realize, A, this is probably not a solid basis for a murder charge. Maybe people shouldn't go to jail for murder, when we haven't proven that there's been a murder. <laughs> We're still talking about a country where they they elect their medical examiners, so I don't know. There's a lot going on there. Um, it's a weird thing to do with a doctor, it, the Democratic vote. It is a weird thing to do, especially because most places don't require the people running for medical examiner to be a doctor, which is fun. You can just be the local dog walker and you're like, you know what, I fancy a change in my life. Uh, have you ever just wanted to be American? <laughs> All I have to do is convince Nevada that I should be able to be allowed to touch a kidney. For the sake of unmolested kidneys, let's hope it's not that simple. The The police who searched the Borden home on the day of the murders actually really didn't discover much. Despite the very gruesome crimes, there was very little blood at the scene and no blood outside of those two individual crime scenes. Like a crime like this, you would expect blood to be everywhere ceiling walls oh, everywhere hallways footprints sinks everywhere like the elevator scene from the shining is like what you would expect head wounds bleed a lot like no matter how much you know how much they bleed you're not ready for how much they actually bleed no it's no you're not a lot of it's... blood uh especially at high pressure yeah and a hatchet is like, you're making a levering motion as you are smacking the shit out of somebody with a hatchet. You're flinging blood back over your shoulder, basically. Oh, over up onto the ceiling. I once dropped a can of tomato soup and people found splatter on the ceiling. Like, it's... And, and the soup doesn't have a pulse. No, and you would expect the person to kind of track it everywhere. They'd have it all over their hands, they would be stepping in it, you'd be getting it all over the place, but... There's no blood in the hallways, no blood in the bathrooms, there's no blood on the people, other than the ones that are dead. Which is weird because this person definitely moved between floors after killing somebody. 100%. The The two bodies were found roughly within, you know, a couple minutes of each other, but Andrew's body was so fresh that it was still warm and still bleeding, whereas... Abby's body was cold and showed the first signs of coagulation, so they estimated she'd been dead for about 60 to 90 minutes by the time that they found her. 
So yeah, this person moved between scenes without tracking blood all over the house, which is genuinely impressive. In the basement of the Warden house, the police located two axes, two hatchets, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. Police suspected the broken hatchet to be the murder weapon, stating that the break in the handle looked fresh and that the dust on this hatchet head didn't seem to match the dust on the other hatchets. There's a lot of axe and axe accessories. Their father is a cheapskate. This is how they're heating the house. They suspected that somebody had purposefully sprinkled dust onto the hatchet head to try to make it blend in with the rest of the basement. Photography was not that great back in the day, so we'll never really know. But they also never located the handle of that hatchet head. Police were never actually able to make an exact match between the wounds on the victims and the hatchets in the basement, but they felt that the broken hatchet was probably the closest. It's ballistics and and forensics in the day was just not what it is today. Just sort of eyeballing it. We're just kind of eyeballing it. We're like, you know what? There's well, I mean, eventually they would actually deflesh the victims' skulls. Uh, horrible detail alert. And they would be able to like hold the hatchet into the wounds, and they're like, it kind of fits. Uh, it's pretty close. So you know, as one does, forensics. It's science. Don't question it. Police did not thoroughly check Lizzie over for blood stains. They weren't strip searching the girl, but they didn't note any obvious blood on her person, which it would have been pretty difficult to not be coated in blood. No, like if you had done this up close and personal, either you had two clothing chains in one morning, in which case, why didn't we find that? And like, never mind, like, there's no hot shower in this place. Like, no. either you had two baths and two full changes of clothes, or you're just unusually cleanly for an axe murderer. <laughs> There's also no running water in the house. If you want to take a bath, you're out at the well pumping in the backyard. <laughs> you're just hammering at the handle as quick as possible, like, fuck, 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 and you're covered in blood. <laughs> the neighbors are going to notice. They're a nosy bunch. So police didn't actually remove anything from the house, including the hatchets at that time. So they removed nothing on August 4th. They were just like, Nice hatchet, probably the murder weapon, and then just left. Ten out of ten police work. <laughs> Let's call her a day. Never mind, like, where's the blood in the basement? Nothing. There is no blood in the basement. Just a clean, broken axe that they're like, that doesn't look the correct amount of dusty. Lizzie's uncle stayed the night of August 4th with the family, sleeping in an unused bedroom in the attic. Lizzie's friend Alice Russell, also a spinster, stayed with the family for several days after the murders. Like we mentioned, the Borden victims are still in the house for several days after the murders, just stretched out on mortuary boards in the dining room, just going through the stages of rigor mortis next to the table where people eat dinner. That is not hot girl summer. It's not hot girl summer. It is hot corpse summer, though. That's a long time to have two dead bodies in your living room. You never forget the smell of rotting flesh. Every time is like the first time. I've had some horrifying jobs in my life, including jobs that involved old corpse. And I can tell you, oh, she stays with you. <laughs> Lingers like a lover's kiss. Oh, yeah. You can taste it for days. Days. <laughs> People like to die in the summertime and oh, nope, 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 hot corpse. Not, not a scent anybody's clambering for. Not... A Christmas tree-shaped air freshener you're going to find anytime soon. Not exactly Chanel number five. They don't make a Glade plug-in for hot corpse. They they just don't. 
There is not a Febreze strong enough. No, no, there's not. Police surrounded the Borden house on that first night after the murders to keep watch. One of them testified that he saw Alice and Lizzie heading down to the cellar with a kerosene lamp in a bucket. The two women exited the cellar and then Lizzie returned to the cellar alone. The officer said it appeared that Lizzie was bent over the sink. Alice would later testify that the two of them had gone downstairs to rinse out the slop bucket. Remember, the basement or cellar is the only spot in the house that actually has running water, so they don't really have a choice. Alice also testified that the clothes of the victims had been piled in the washing room in the basement, so I guess we have naked mom and dad corpses in the living room. Oh, hot. Well, I'm guessing there's a sheet involved. I mean, I hope. I hope. One must preserve one's modesty. Lizzie's uncle attempted to leave the house on August 5th, but was mobbed by journalists and curious onlookers who'd gathered outside the house and was forced to retreat back inside. On August 6th, police returned to the home to remove the hatchets and axes as evidence in the case. An officer then came back to the home that evening, accompanied by the mayor of Fall River, who's apparently not got a lot else to do, uh, to inform Lizzie that she had formally named a suspect in her parents' murders. It's probably a weird conversation to have with the two of them chilling on boards in the background behind you. Hi, I'm the mayor. Is that Mr. Borden and Mrs. Borden? Fantastic. I think you fucking killed them. <laughs> I no notes, Jessica. I'm sure the conversation went exactly that way. Word for word. Don't fiddle with the dead people that I'm certain you killed. <laughs> and then they don't arrest her. They're just like, you're suspicious. Have a good evening, ma'am. Like, they don't arrest her. They're just like, you're a suspect. Please continue living at this crime scene. Bye, we're taking your hatchets. Don't fuck up any other evidence. See you later. Mwah. Uh, the following morning, Alice Russell, who's the friend that's staying with them, said that she walked into the kitchen of the Borden home to find Lizzie in front of the stove tearing up a dress. Emma was also in the kitchen at the time. Emma, the sister, had returned home. And she asked what Lizzie was doing. Lizzie replied that she was burning an old dress of hers because it was stained with paint. Alice cautioned her she should probably not be doing that, given the fact that she had just been named a murder suspect. But Lizzie seems to have proceeded to do it anyway. Alice eventually came forward about this interaction, and it became an explosive piece of evidence in the trial. It was, of course, theorized that Lizzie was burning a bloodstained dress to destroy evidence in the murders. It is worth noting that none of the witnesses present on the day of the murder were able to clearly recall what Lizzie was wearing on the day of the murders, and none of the descriptions given of her clothing on that day seemed to clearly match the description of the dress that was burned. They, they turned over what they're pretty sure was the dress she wore on her parents the day of her parents' death, and it has a tiny pinprick of blood on the hem, but it's not the dress that she burns on the stove that day. On August 8th, Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing that was held for her parents' deaths. She requested to have the family's lawyer present at this inquest, but this was denied. A Massachusetts law at the time did not allow lawyers to attend inquests at these were, as these were considered private proceedings. Borden was once again dosed with morphine by her doctor to help calm those womanly nerves prior to the inquest, which probably did not help her at all. I mean, she was, she was definitely calm. Oh no, she was fucking high as balls. So while she, like, contradicted herself on the stand, she was probably very calm about it. Yeah, she wasn't upset. She was just tranked like a skittish racehorse. Yeah, she, sh she should have been upset. Rather than dosed up like a naughty elephant. Right? She's like a nervous dog flying. Yeah, so Borden's behavior at the inquest was described as strange and erratic. 
She once again gave very inconsistent answers to questions. For instance, when asked what she was doing when her father arrived home, she at times claimed to have been reading magazines, ironing, or walking down the stairs. She also refused to answer several questions at the inquest, which was bizarre. Many of the questions she refused to answer actually would have been beneficial to her case and had answers that would have reflected positively on her. It was lying, but in, in a weird way. She was not helping herself with these lies. If they are intentional, they don't make sense. Her behavior at the inquest was actually so strange and so self-incriminating that the transcript of this inquest was actually deemed inadmissible by the judge at her later murder trial. They were like, nope, you get a mulligan on this one. This is too weird. Can't have this in court. Many of Lizzie's friends and family were staunch supporters of her innocence throughout the process, but her strange inquest appearance apparently created some doubts for some of them. Three days after the inquest, on August 11th, a warrant was issued for Lizzie Borden's arrest and she was taken into police custody. She would end up serving nine months of pretrial detention in a local jail. Her doctor would keep her doped up on morphine throughout the duration of this because, you know, again, with the womanly nerves. She's not built to handle incarceration, but she is built to handle nine months of hardcore opiate addiction. <laughs> Fan-fucking-tastic. It's also, like, a very specific infantilization of an upper-class woman. Because, like, realistically, what has Borden been doing for the last ten years? She's been helping her father run businesses and being a, a highly sociable advocate in pro-social meetings. This is not a, a fainting flower who can't handle being in public life. Well, we'll kind of get into this. Like, one of the reasons that the jury, or that, like, the initial investigators kind of struggled with her case is that her descriptions of her life and her the days leading up to the murder don't make a ton of sense because she's explaining them to, like, working-class Irish immigrants. Her life as an upper-class woman of her social standing in that time, she was actually had very little freedom. There was not a lot that she was allowed to do. So she had, you know, very specific ways that she could be active. She could be involved with the church. She could be involved in church society. But she wasn't really allowed to do anything. She just kind of existed in her house. Well, she exists in her house and she exists as an extension of her father. Yeah, she's she's not allowed to be her own public person other than being like in these very specific Christian ladies charities. She can kind of help her dad with the business, but she has no autonomy. She's she's not allowed to, like, go out and do things and have a career and move out of her house. Like, she's kind of not allowed to do anything. She's under her dad's thumb all the time. And and that that's, that's why being unmarried in her station was such a penalty. Because that means you stay with your parents forever. Yeah, you don't actually get to socially transition to adulthood until you're married. The second that she's kind of broken out of this routine, there is such infantilization at the time of women who are of her social standing. Like, she's she's not allowed to kind of be an adult, even though she's 32 years old. That uh, yeah, the minute the minute she faces ad- adversity, they just gotta dope, dope her to the fucking tits. So a grand jury hearing in her case was held on November 7th of, 19, of 1892, not 1982. That's a very long pretrial detention. <laughs> They're making her wait a hundred years to have her day in court. The arc of history is long, but it turns towards justice. <laughs> very, very slowly towards justice. 
So a grand jury hearing in her case was held on November 7th of 1892, and it was initially made up of 23 jurors. So the 23 jurors on her grand jury initially decided to adjourn without taking any action on the case, which basically means they're failing to indict her. They're not laying criminal charges. The district attorney reconvened the grand jury in early December, and this time they brought out Alice Russell, who testified about Lizzie Borden burning a dress several days after the murder. And this was the first time that this evidence was ever heard. So the grand jury then decided to move forward with the case, and Lizzie was formally indicted for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden on December 2nd of 1892. For the crime of suspicious dress burning. She was actually charged for three crimes, which is interesting. The murder of Andrew, the murder of Abby, and then, like, the murder of both of them, which was its own crime. What? Mm-hmm. All right. Cover your bases, I guess. Trying to get a fox hen and bag a grain over a river game? How many things can we charge her for if she gets convicted of dad and both, but not Abby? Like, does that work? Is that possible? Can she be convicted of the two individual, but not the both? I don't know. I think I think it's kind of a, a moot point. Borden's trial, one of the first true quote-unquote trials of the century, possibly the first trial of the century, not in the sense that this was the first trial to take place in the 1800s, it absolutely was not. It was the first trial that had like a huge media frenzy around it. It was the first one that really like leading up to the trial, it dominated the headlines, people were very invested in this and the outcome of this trial, people followed it very closely. This was kind of the first one to really blow up that way. I don't know about trial of the century, but I figure, like, a, a trial of the millennia has to be that one time in Greece when, like, they were trying to execute this lady, and she's just like, but obviously the gods have looked upon me in favor, and she showed them her titties, and they were just like, right, then they let her go. The titty defense. We love it. It's just a, a solid legal theory. Yeah, I mean, like, it comes from, like, the same line of logic that gets you shit like trial by combat. It's like, okay... <laughs> First of all, if <laughs> like, I was guilty, why would I be smoking hot? Second of all, <laughs> if you think I'm guilty, how about I kick your ass? So there's a lot of evidence against me, but you'll find that I also have a very large sword. And they're like, ah, excellent point. <laughs> we hadn't considered that. You might think that I'm guilty of, of beating this man to death, but did you know I could also throw hands? <laughs> I could beat a different man to death for you instead. And that would prove I did not beat the original man to death. And they're like, this makes perfect sense. Proceed with the beating. (laughs) (laughs) Begin. (laughs) Uh, So Borden's trial took place in the nearby town of New Bedford, Massachusetts on June 5th. or It began on June 5th, 1893. This is not a one day affair. Fall River, her hometown, was deemed to be not a fair venue. Everybody knew too much. uh, So they moved the venue to a nearby town. Everyone had already been there. Come on. Uh, Yeah, everybody's been in the barn at this point, so they're like, you know what? No, all of you were personally at the crime scene. None of you can be jurors. You sit there and think about what you did. The prosecutors in the Lizzie Borden case were Hosea Knowlton, which sounds like a fake name, and William Moody. You don't meet a lot of Hoseas uh, around anymore. Hosea? I don't even know how to say it. Hosea? H-O-S-E-A. Hosea. 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 Sure. I, I trust me. This is a religious name. It's Hosea. <laughs> Hosea Knowlton. You don't. You don't see a lot of those anymore. I wonder if there's any chastities and God speaks through me's in the area as well. <laughs> what a, what a name that rolls off the tongue. A God speaks through me. It's still better than what white people are naming their babies on TikTok. Caitlin, with an eight. <laughs> 
nope, you should go to jail for that. I don't believe. Caitlin with the Roman numeral eight in it. I'm as big a prison abolitionist as anybody, but you should go directly to jail for naming your kid Caitlin with an eight in it. That should be do that should be a crime. Go, do not collect two hundred dollars. No, straight to jail. No due process. Absolutely not. That should be illegal. Knowlton was the lead prosecutor on the case and reportedly knew he was very unlikely to get a conviction on the case. He fully believed that she was guilty, but he recognized that the evidence in the case was pretty thin and really didn't support a conviction. So his goal apparently was to get a hung jury, which would allow them to declare a mistrial and retry the case again in the future with any new evidence that emerged. Just running out the clock. They wanted to run out the clock and then put a pin in it, is basically what the legal strategy was here. Which is risky. That's a risky thing to do. They couldn't keep her in pretrial detention forever. Because Lizzie had quite a few supporters. Like, the way that it's told now is that, you know, everybody hated her and everybody turned on her. No. The town was split along class lines. The wealthy and the Protestants were very much Team Lizzie. It was the immigrant Catholic population which was about half the town, that was against her. So there was a lot of public opinion that was actually very pro-Lizzie. Confirmation bias. And once the idea was planted, people really weren't willing to budge either way. And in a case with very little evidence, it really did come down to what you chose to believe, which was broken out along whether or not you were in her social class. So Lizzie's uh, had an equally robust defense team, consisting of prominent lawyers Andrew Jennings, Melvin Ohio Adams, which is not a nickname, his middle name really was Ohio, and George D. Robinson. I I told you there was Puritans here. (laughs) Naming their kid weird shit. Ohio is a perfectly lovely name for a... Jebediah Jesus wept Samson is almost here. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and, and finally the last member of her defense team was George D. Robinson, who was former governor of the state of Massachusetts. So she was not a social pariah and outcast in the way that she's now portrayed. Like, she had a former governor as her lawyer. She had some hefty, hefty people on her side. Lizzie stood trial in front of an all-male jury, as Massachusetts would not allow women to serve on juries until fucking 1950. We're years, Classic. decades away from female jurors. Everyone in this room is going to be dead. She also stands trial in front of a nearly all-Protestant jury. There is only a single Catholic Irishman who makes it onto the jury. So she is tried in front of a jury of, I believe, 11 Protestants and one Catholic. The trial would last for a total of 15 days, and as you've probably already guessed, Lizzie Borden was drugged to the tits on morphine for all of it. If it wasn't for the whole suspicion of murder thing, this is just an inspirational story of a woman getting her life together after 10 months of hardcore opiate addiction. (laughs) She just, she didn't even take the stand. They're just like, being here is difficult for you. Have some drugs. Just have her swaying. Presumably she had some half-competent defense attorneys. They decided that it was not in her benefit to have her take the stand during her trial. Let's not put her back on the stand. I've been governor before, and that shit was whack. (laughs) So at one point, without warning, the prosecution revealed the preserved skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden in the courtroom. Uh, Oh! Yeah, didn't really give a warning that that was a thing that they were going to do, so so Lizzie had no idea. She's just kind of- she's just kind of drooling at her own murder trial, and then, like, her dad's skull is in front of her with giant chunks of it missing. Alas, poor Yorika. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think she was allowed to reenact the final scene of Hamlet. 
I think that's a separate crime if you grab an evidence display and start using it to act out Shakespeare. I think they, they put more crimes on the list. Honestly, it would explain a lot of Hamlet's behavior <laughs> if he was just snookered on morphing the entire time, and that's why he's seeing ghosts. That's, that's the subtext, probably. But yeah, so at the sight of her parents' mutilated skulls, Lizzie apparently fainted and took several minutes to come to. As we've mentioned, the trial was a media circus, and public opinion on Lizzie was very, very divided. So some people packed into the courtroom to see this wicked, murdering spinster brought to justice, and some packed into the courtroom to show their support and outrage for the way that a quote-unquote Protestant nun, which was what Lizzie was often referred to by Protestant media at the time, being unfairly railroaded by the courts. Um, so there was this big narrative that, like, Lizzie was this virginal... She's never taken a dick, you must acquit. Ha! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. No, you're not allowed to go to law school. I can't... Eat. No. No. <laughs> you would be the fastest disbarment in Canadian history. Uh, and every time I sit down, I just whisper to him, and they think I'm giving him him advice, but I'm actually just saying, steal your father's penis. Steal the your fact father's penis. That you no, no, you can't be a therapist. You can't be a lawyer. I don't. I don't even know that you should be a pet owner. I don't know what we're supposed to do with you. I think ideally we would take one of those like giant human hamster balls and just keep you in there. I think is the ideal scenario. I'd love one of those upside down water bottles where you just look at that little bottle. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I think we just, I think we just roll you around town like a catamari. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, I think that's nah, the, nah, 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 that's the only scenario by which you should interact with people. I want a little bed of wood shavings. Somebody will go to jail. It's, it may or may not be your client. It's, it's. Take his testicles. Steal it. Mm-hmm. Take it from him. He doesn't deserve it. I'm gonna send this episode to your dad just to make it weird. <laughs> 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 But I'm yeah, so sorry, Dad. <laughs> yeah, leave leave your father's penis alone. I won't steal your penis. <laughs> what a thing to record and put on the internet. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes people have turned to me. They're like, "Well, I know you had a rough childhood," and I'm like, "I didn't. There's no excuse for this." No, it was wonderful. This is this is just my brain being bad. Idyllic. <laughs> I just have a brain that is not good. That's this is a hardware issue. <laughs> software is fine it was it was handled wonderfully very gently i was stored at the proper temperature yeah. <laughs> yeah. i wasn't bumped around this is a manufacturer defect <laughs> just a, just a printing error right right from the source <laughs> Woo. But, there was there was quite a bit of outrage among the way that this poor gentle Protestant nun was being... She wasn't actually a nun. She hadn't taken vows. That was just how she was treated in the media. That's not a thing. But there was outrage at the way she was being treated. She was a a Sunday school teacher and a secretary of the Ladies' Church Society. uh, And she was a virginal 32-year-old who was dedicated all her free time to church because she was bored out of her fucking skull. So there was some thought that, you know, those working-class Irishmen... This is a real old-timey kind of racism. Try to keep up... Uh, that they were basically targeting her because they were jealous of her being the rich and American and not being into Mary as much as they were. I don't know. The Catholic underclass very much saw her as a privileged girl from the landed gentry who was using her mommy and daddy's money to get away with murder. Of her mommy and daddy. 
the hoity-toityer types in town who were largely, you know, several gens deep into Americans and, and were wealthier, they were scandalized by the Irish police officer's treatment of Lizzie, including the fact that on the day of the murders, one of the officers had interviewed her alone in her bedroom, which is most improper. Scandalous. She was being mishandled by these brutes. It just feels like a mistake to have an ethnic underclass almost exclusively compose the police. That that feels like it's naturally going to result in a situation where they don't feel comfortable fully enacting justice against the upper classes, and the upper classes don't respect their judgments. It runs into this, right? They don't deal a lot with the wealthier classes. The kinds of crime the upper classes are doing at this point are not the sorts of things that they get caught for. They're not axe-murdering each other. They're doing types of fraud that are hard to catch. Like, they're not doing as much of the murdering stuff. That probably explains why they didn't call the police first anyway. Yeah, they considered themselves on a different plane of society. Adding fuel to the fire was the fact that on June 1st, 1893, just four days before Lizzie's trial, another high-profile axe murder was committed in Fall River, one that had a lot of similarities to the Borden case. So a Portuguese immigrant was arrested and ultimately convicted of that murder. And although it was later determined, I know, I know, they just, they've just like, where's the Portuguese who did this? There's been violence. Bring him to us. Find the first man with back hair and bring him. <laughs> I want a swarthy mustache in front of me pronto. It, it's still bad. It's it's still not great. But yeah, that's basically what happened. A Portuguese immigrant was arrested and ultimately convicted of that murder, and although it was later determined he had not been in the vicinity of Fall River during the Borden murders, this hadn't gone to trial. This was just three days before, or four days before Lizzie's trial starts, when Lizzie is already, like, just drooling in a jail cell. So she couldn't possibly have done it. So there was a lot of outrage going around at the time of the trial that, you know, clearly there is a serial axe murder in the community, um... You've got the wrong girl, basically. Whoever did this axe murder four days ago is clearly the real culprit. Oh, it's so hot in here. I'm basically steamed. Oh, yeah, I'm just under boob sweat with hair. That's that's all we've got left here. I am a delicately crunchy asparagus. <laughs> in terms of flavor or scent? Mmm, <laughs> both. Mmm. It helps that I've smeared myself with butter. Does it? It'll make you slippery if you get stuck in the dryer? What exactly does that benefit? <laughs> I can uh, fit myself through any hole that can uh, withstand my rib cage, like a cat. <laughs> you're just, your roommate friend is just like living their own life and you just like slide through the cat door all covered in butter. <laughs> you just birth yourself in this, like, rush of butter placenta on the living room floor. That's not upsetting at all. <laughs> this is what it means. The cycle of rebirth. <laughs> it's... They're like, that better not be my margarine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you oozing through a cat door covered in parquet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna go to weird jail. That's probably not illegal, but it should be. They're going to have a law named after you. It's going to be Jessica's law, and you're going to be like, oh, it's probably a law about like some kid who got kidnapped. Like Those are always sad laws. And you're going to look at it and be like, yeah, it's, it's just illegal to rub yourself up with Crisco and try to squeeze through a bathroom window. <laughs> Jessica's law. 
I am the ghost of Christmas past. I symbolize virgin birth. I come on December 23rd. Yeah, the Pope is coming to Canada, like, immediately. You, He's going to make a detour to personally excommunicate you for that one. And probably exor- ex- exorcise me, if I've had this right. Yeah, probably. That's not- that's- nope. I don't think the virgin birth covered in Crisco is the look they're going for. <laughs> but yeah, you could spend quite literally months poring over all of the evidence and all of the transcripts from the trial- But in the interest of time, we'll just kind of summarize the evidence that was presented on both sides. So, evidence that roughly pointed to Lizzie Borden's guilt in the case. For starters, Lizzie had a motive. She benefited financially from the deaths of her parents in a pretty big way. Since Abby was determined to have died roughly 90 to 60 minutes before Andrew died, Abby's estate passed to Andrew upon her death, and then the entire estate went to Emma and Lizzie upon the death of their father, effectively cutting off Abby's family. Although Abby's family would actually settle a pretty substantial claim against the estate in the end, they they got their money, Emma and Lizzie ultimately split the bulk of their father's fortune, which again, the total estate totaled about $9 million in today's money. It was really no secret that Abby and Emma were very unhappy with their father's frugal lifestyle, and he was the one thing standing between them and the lifestyle that they craved. After the trial, when they got control of the money, the sisters lived it up. They moved to a stately mansion on the hill like they'd always wanted to. They had numerous live-in servants, and they probably had flush toilets. Like, they got to, to carpe diem with their father's money. Hot bath, bitches. They maybe had a phone... They had a coachman, like, they were living it up. Lizzie was also said to have generally disliked her stepmother, believing that she had married her father just to get a hold of his money, which, task failed successfully. The relationship between Lizzie and Abby was said to have always been strained and weird. They really never got along. The prosecution also hinted that Lizzie may have been upset with her father for killing some of the family's pigeons, and that she may have murdered him for revenge. Lizzie was a huge animal lover throughout her life. After she died, she would actually leave a sizable portion of her estate to an animal rights charity. She was she was big on this. I'd kill someone over a pigeon. You'd kill somebody over anything. You would kill somebody over <laughs> Taco Bell. You would kill somebody over a flip-flop that didn't fit you. Like, you... I would kill to feel alive, and I would kill to see what it tasted like. Yeah, you need adult supervision. But I would also kill over a pigeon. I feel that. Mood. <laughs> Mood. Mood, she says. You are going to jail, Jessica. Straight to jail. <laughs> um, I've been on TikTok studi- studying the teens. Yeah, just the way you say that. It's, it feels like it should be illegal. <laughs> Straight to jail. Straight to jail. Yeah. Immediately. They do these funny dances remixed to pop songs while talking about the way that they were assaulted as a child. It's fascinating. Children are not all right. <laughs> you sound like something halfway between an archaeologist or an anthropologist explaining like an uncontacted civilization and a dad listing things he saw at Costco. <laughs> Lizzie was also one of the few people who had the opportunity to commit the murders. The doors to the house were secured at the time of Abby's murder, except for the kitchen side door, which is not generally what people would have tried to enter the house through. There were five people home on the morning of the murders, Lizzie, Maggie, Abby, Andrew, and the Uncle John, and it would have been difficult for an intruder to get past all of them undetected, especially since Maggie spent most of the morning in and around the vicinity of the screen door. 
Abby's body was cold when she was found, as we've mentioned, and that she had died 90 to 60 to 90 minutes before Andrew, it would have been very difficult for an intruder to either remain in the house during that time without being detected, or to leave the house and then re-enter to commit the second murder undetected. Those are both very difficult things to pull off. There weren't a ton of people that had an opportunity to do this. Um, the odds of a stranger wandering in and being like, you know what time it is, it's fucking hatchet murder time, and then pulling this off are slim to none. Nowadays, most burglaries take place during the daytime. Like, this this actually took place at a very good time for modern burglaries. But that assumes that you're not robbing a rich house with servants and women who stay home all day. Yeah, back in the day, you really couldn't get away with this thing because there would always be somebody home. Yeah, like, we don't have, like, the concentration where, like, every adult is working and every kid is at school. Absolutely not. It wasn't unusual at the time for even middle-class families to have some Irish servant girl kicking around the house. That wasn't... The bar to that wasn't super, super high. Like, there's every reason to believe that someone's home. Yeah, with the size of the house that they have, you would have had a servant to help you maintain it, even during the day. It has servants' quarters on the third floor. Like, this is a home that's intended to be maintained with a full-time help. Another piece of evidence that worked against Lizzie was the fact that she was heard laughing on the second floor at around the time Abby would have been killed up there. We kind of talked about how, with, you know, the layout, she wouldn't necessarily have seen the body, but the audio is still a bit of a problem. This is an age before noise-canceling headphones. She's not on her bed talking to her friends on the cell phone. If she's upstairs... Not rocking out to her portable Victrola? She's not on the portable Victrola. She's not not got her Walkman blasting. It would have been hard for her to be upstairs and not hear the sound of somebody literally being axe-beaten to death. That feels like a noisy activity. I'm not, I'm like, not quite as noisy as a child with a recorder, but quite noisy. Abby Borden was not a small woman. She was over 200 pounds. So they, like, to not hear a crash and be like, man, I wonder if my stepmother just died. Like, I should go investigate that. It's, it's like, unusual. 200 pounds on the floor, even if it's a soft 200 pounds. And I mean, they built houses sturdy back then. Those, these, no prefab suburban house for them but even in a sturdy house with some solid floors if you're in the room next door it's hard to believe that you wouldn't hear something and go investigate lizzie's friend alice russell testified to the dress burning that lizzie was burning a dress just days after the murder complaining that it was stained with paint but burning an old garment was unusual at the time in general it's weird even for people who hadn't been recently questioned in murder cases Um, typically people would give old garments to the servants to tear them up to use as rags. You wouldn't waste it by burning it. A local pharmacist also came forward claiming that a woman matching Lizzie Borden's description came into his chemist shop on August the 3rd, which was the day before the murders, looking to buy prussic acid, which is otherwise known as hydrogen cyanide, claiming she needed it to clean a seal skin cloak, which Lizzie Borden did own one of those. Hydrogen cyanide is a potent poison, to the extent that it was the main ingredient of Zyklon B, which was the poison favored by the Nazi regime. It's toxic stuff. It's a weird thing to clean a cloak with. Not exactly a gentle detergent. Even sprinkling that on your clothing in a poorly ventilated area would not be good for you. 
the pharmacists believe that Lizzie was actually looking to use this as poison to murder her family and that she turned to axe murder when she wasn't able to acquire it. The judge ultimately did not find this compelling and did not allow the jury to consider this testimony, mostly because the pharmacist had no relationship with Lizzie and couldn't, they didn't trust he could positively identify her. He didn't know her. The prosecution also cast doubt on Lizzie's story. So Lizzie's alibi for her father's murder was basically that she was out in the barn at the time. She said that she went out to the barn for 20 to 30 minutes during the time when her father would have been killed. She claimed she had gone up to the barn loft um, to get a piece of tin or a piece of iron to fix the screen in her bedroom. And that she was out there for 20 to 30 minutes and that when she came back, her father had already been murdered. The police claimed that when they examined the barn, however, it was obvious that nobody had been up to the second level of it in at least several days. Lizzie never gave a consistent story about the day of the murders. She kept changing basic details about her story, like whether she heard the noise on the way back from the barn, where she was when her father got home, and whether or not she helped her father take his shoes off. So she's, she never really lands on a cogent narrative of the day during the police questioning and the inquest. Police and prosecution also found Lizzie's accounts of her activities leading up to the murders incredibly odd. According to her, she's just kind of drifting. She's ironing for a bit. She goes out to the barn for half an hour to look for a piece of iron. She's just kind of vibing in the barn. She can't really explain the purpose of anything she's doing that day. She's just bopping around. The prosecution also made a lot out of the fact that Lizzie did not cry on the day of her parents' murders, but as we've already discussed, it's not great. There's not a lot of evidentiary value in whether or not somebody is crying as much as you would like them to. And the prosecution also, and I fucking shit you not, argued that the number of blows and the sloppiness of the wounds were both evidence that the crime had been committed by an, and uh, this is a direct fucking quote, irresolute, imperfect, feminine hand. Oh, really? A man would just take the tops of their heads clean off and be done with her. It's a woman that's chopping away, apparently. Are you sure this is a legal transcript and not, like, an incel forum on Reddit? What the fuck? <laughs> We're basically one step away from, like, entering the shape of her head into evidence as phrenology. An imperfect female hand. We're one small step down from phrenology being evidence in this trial. She's got a suspicious forehead angle. It's also very strange to look at a violent axe murder and be like, a woman did this, because that's almost never true. The most feminine, almost effet axe murder I have ever seen. <laughs> Look at these blows. Clearly with a limp wrist. Half of her father's eyeball has popped out. That's a, that's very feminine. That's ladylike. <laughs> ladylike eyeball poppage. Delicate. Genteel. Yeah, no. Not so much. So on the surface, things kind of don't look good for Lizzie when you total up that side of things. But if you really start to pick at the evidence against her, you can open up some pretty big gaps. So, for starters, a lot of people have weird feelings about their stepmothers and don't axe murder them. That's a pretty extreme reaction. Most of them, in fact. Most of- the vast majority, I would- I would chance to say. The vast majority of stepmothers die of natural causes. I've heard. Lizzie didn't like her stepmother, but she also didn't have much to do with her. Lizzie and Abby led largely separate lives. They rarely spoke. They didn't hang out. They ate meals at separate times. There wasn't really, like, a big catalyst for her to murder the woman. They'd just been existing, like, 
leading separate lives and avoiding each other for years. They weren't bare-knuckle brawling in the kitchen, and there wasn't a big catalyst that we know of that would have brought their relationship to a breaking point. Yeah, it feels like they're, they have a they have a good middle ground where they don't really interact, even if they don't like each other. It's very weird to just go from that to like, well, bitch gotta die. Lizzie was also said to have had a close relationship with her father, even if they did have some disagreements about lifestyle. As we mentioned, the only piece of jewelry that Andrew wore was a ring that Lizzie gifted to him, which he never, ever took off. The man literally didn't even wear a wedding ring. He only wore this piece of jewelry that Lizzie had gifted him. They did have moments of warmness and tenderness. And again, there wasn't an obvious personal motive for her to kill him, other than the finances. There wasn't any evidence either that Lizzie was ever upset about the pigeon thing. Even though she was rah-rah animal rights, that looked very different in the 1800s than it does now. Uh, and it was quite common for families of that era to raise and kill pigeons to eat them. This would have been something that Lizzie was accustomed to at this point in her life. Yeah, like, this is more like the low-hanging fruit of just like, hey, I just don't think we should whip horses with kittens. <laughs> Those are separate activities. Yeah, like, animal rights at this stage of the game is like, maybe less bear baiting and not like, it's... <laughs> we're not we're not full-fledged vegans. Like, we're not we're not quite there yet. But as far as, yeah, committing axe murder over pigeons is pretty extreme in an, in an age when people just raise and eat pigeons. That's just a part of life. The investigators who examined Abby also initially included that her attacker was quite tall, kind of based on the angle and the appearance of the blow she'd sustained while standing. Lizzie was not. She was only two to three inches taller than her stepmother. Everyone in the story is tiny. Everybody was, including Lizzie Borden. It would have been physically difficult for Lizzie to pull this off. Her passport said she stood five foot three, and she weighed around 130 to 135 times pounds at the time of the murders. So she's she's not a large person. She's well, she's average for the time. She, at the time, she's basically just perfectly average for the time. For now, she's tiny. Now she's doll sized. Okay, but I can rock her like a baby. Yes, you I could. can tick her up in my hands, and I can whirl her around like a toddler. You could you could bottle feed Lizzie Borden, which is an important personal <laughs> metric to know. I could lift her on my shrill shoulder and burp her. Yes, you could burp Lizzie Borden. What an important thing to know about yourself. <laughs> Lizzie actually gained weight during in jail because I guess she was just staring at the ceiling on morphine all day and wasn't getting her exercise in. So a lot of media depictions of Lizzie Borden portray her as kind of this, like, giant, hulking, masculine figure with an axe. But again, she's advertised for the day, and she's tiny by today's standards. But yeah, you can look up some of the pictures of her parents' skulls, and you can see that, like, those things were obliterated. It would have taken a degree of strength to pull off this crime. This was a very physical crime. Lizzie was also seen by multiple people shortly after both of the murders and had no blood on her at all. It would have been extraordinarily difficult to pull off this crime without being just completely head-to-toe coated in blood like the end scene of Carrie. Especially for a Sunday school teacher who has very limited axe murdering or anything murdering experience. It would be in your hair, under your fingernails, like, on your skin. This shit would be in your teeth. Right, and they, they never see any blood on her. Because remember, they searched the house twice before the dress-burning incident, and they never saw anything 
in her clothing that was bloodstained or unusual. Two independent witnesses also both verified that they saw Lizzie exiting the Borden family barn and walking back toward the house at approximately 11.03 a.m. on the day of the murders, which matched with her story that she spent time out there in the barn. Two independent neighbors saw her leave it at the time she said that she did. The, the time frame here is pretty tight if Lizzie is the murderer. We, we have her spending 20 to 30 minutes in the family barn, walking back to the house at about 11 o'clock to 11.03, and then by approximately 11.10, she's hollering for the maid that there's been a murder. That is not a lot of time to go get your weapon, bludgeon your dad to death, clean up all the blood off of yourself, break the handle of the hatchet off, put the hatchet head in the basement, dispose of the hatchet handle, and call for help. That's a pretty jam-packed schedule for seven minutes. I mean, the days are just packed. I've, I've never been this efficient. No, no, me neither. This is, this is, this is boogieing if she's the guilty party. All that and murder? You are, your talents are wasted, my child. Right, think of how productive you could be if you put this into, into literally anything else. Numerous reporters, onlookers, and, like, random flocks of curious children and people went into the barn between the time of the murders and the time of the police search, which really really cast some doubts on the police's testimony that there was that the barn was dusty and that the dust had clearly not been disturbed in days because they knew for a fact it had been disturbed repeatedly by everyone the people journalists children lollygaggers the irish there's some canadians in there like who knows repulsive i bet there's even a portuguese a Harvard biochemist who examined the broken hatchet testified it did not contain any traces of blood and he felt it was very unlikely to have been the murder weapon. There's no blood stains. there's no nothing. Lizzie's defense maintained that the hatchet had actually been broken long before the murders, that it had been covered in dust organically in the basement, um, and that it's simply not the murder weapon, that the police just kind of pulled this out of their collective butts. It also doesn't make a ton of sense for Lizzie to have kept the hatchet in the basement. She had multiple days to dispose of it outside the home if it really was the murder weapon, and she didn't. She just left it there for the police to find when they did their search. It's a pretty shitty attempt to hide a weapon to break the handle off of it, which would have been very difficult and only makes it more conspicuous, and then burn the blood-stained handle. That's, it just seems implausible to then just keep it in the cellar sprinkle some dust on it to make it look like the others that i don't know that seems far-fetched to me yeah it seems a little too cute it also doesn't make a ton of sense that she would be such a criminal mastermind she can pull off two incredibly impressive murders without leaving a trace without getting any blood on her without creating blood around the house but then she just like puts the murder weapon in the basement for the police to find like that doesn't make a ton of sense yeah like she's simultaneously a moron and batman by this yeah, theory. and I feel like most people who are on the Batman spectrum are just, they're on the Batman spectrum for everything. You can't be... You don't get to be half Batman. A genius at axe murder, but very bad at hiding a, a, an axe. I don't know. Yeah, never mind, like, I can't, I can't keep a story straight about whether or not I untied my dad's shoes. But also, like, I can perfectly clean myself up after two different murders to the point where no witness noticed that I'm coated in blood. Because there had been allegations of poisoning, because the victims were sick leading up to the day of the murder, um, the victims' stomachs and their milk 
Like, not from their stomachs, like the family milk from- They did not milk the dead bodies? They did not milk the dead bodies. This is milk from the They did not milk Mr. Borden? They didn't, and what a horrifying series of words you just said in a row. (laughs) They did not milk Andrew Jackson Borden? They did not. They did not milk his corpse? (laughs) There was no human milk involved in this. This was the cow milk that the family had had delivered the morning of the murders. They took that. And tested it for poison along with the stomachs of the victims during the investigation. None of it was found to contain any trace of poison. It's possible the mystery of why does the family that keeps reheating day-old fish and mutton keep getting sick is probably not that mysterious. Mystery of the century. Why do I poop myself every time I leave the mayonnaise out? (laughs) Well, no, interestingly, the family gets sick about two days before the murders... And Lizzie goes for the doctor. Andrew tells her not to get the doctor. He thinks it's a waste of money and he doesn't want to spend money on it. But Lizzie insists on seeking a medical professional. And as soon as the doctor, who was the same one that would attend to the murders, finds out the family's been eating reheated room temperature swordfish, he sort of laughs at them. (laughs) Because even back then, they're like, nah, bro. Nah, bro, don't do that. There's no third day on unrefrigerated seafood. Yeah, you're about to find out what happens when you combine the words butthole cannon. It's going to be really uncomfortable. Just a super soaker of straight out your sphincter. But it seems very hard to believe that Lizzie could have been out to murder and poison the family when, when they all get sick at the same time. She's the only one who bothers to go for a doctor against her parents' wishes. Yeah, it just it feels like a lot of effort to go to to get fucking caught. At the end of the proceedings... Associate Justice Justin Dewey, which does not sound like a 19th century name, but somehow is. No. Okay, we have Justin here, and his, and his I, I assume, co-counsel Blake. Uh, it doesn't sound like a 19th century name. Hey, are you guys high schoolers? <clears throat> no, that is a 28-year-old man who hands out with high schoolers at the skate park. Like, that's what a Justin Dewey is doing right now. But uh, Associate Justice Dewey gave a summary of the case at the end while delivering jury instruction um, that was said to heavily favor the defense. So the jury began deliberations on June 20th of 1893, and they also ended deliberations on June 20th of 1893, (laughs) acquitting Lizzie Borden on all counts in just 90 minutes. Uh, Ooh, that plan plan to stall did not work. They just looked at that and they are like, Nope, acquitted, acquitted. And apparently, there's so hard. The legend legends go that they only really deliberated for about twenty minutes and then just hung out in the juror room because they thought it would look weird if they came back too early. That's the story. I can't <laughs> verify that it's true, but I want it to be true. I want it to be true. I've done the, the, the odd debate tournament where, like, you know, you just hold, wait for twenty minutes so that it doesn't feel mean. Yeah, you just you you gotta just give that extra little buffer of time so it looks like you thought about it. Um, apparently, apparently that's what went on here, but, but who knows? Um, as she left the courthouse, Lizzie told onlookers and journalists that she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world, which she got some flack for. But in fairness, I think anybody would be pretty thrilled to not get sentenced to hanging on a day when that was possibly in the cards for you. I would be pretty stoked. Yeah, that, I, 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 you know, I'm not saying that, like, I'd be overjoyed, but, like, I definitely, like, at least a fist pump. Yeah, that makes, you know, top ten, honestly. Definitely not the worst thing that ever happened to you. It's a solid day. It's a solid day. Yeah. I would tr- I would treat myself to a little iced coffee on the way home. That plus a little bit of ice cream, that's a nine. That's a nine out of ten. That's a treat yourself kind of day. 
After the trial, Lizzie and Emma Borden purchased a manor home on French Street in Fall River in the Upscale Hill neighborhood as they had wanted to for a while. The sisters named their new home Maplecroft, and they lived there comfortably with a cast of live-in servants, including a coachman, which was the absolute height of luxury at the time. When cars began to, to be a thing, Lizzie actually owned a couple of those too. Like, she, she had all the toys. After the trial, Lizzie changed her name to Lizbeth Borden in an apparent attempt to distance herself from the trial. Weak. Not sure that she took the name change far enough. I feel like people can figure out that Lizzie is actually Lizbeth. I feel like that's... I, I, feel like, I feel like people would just think that's what it was short for. I don't, I don't think you're fooling anybody. Not a lot of people think that Lizzie is a full name. I, if, I, if I change my name and I change it to Jesse with an I... Yeah, I would hunt you down. Like, I'm sorry. I deserve to be caught. In their hometown of Fall River, Lizzie was antagonized and ostracized. Children would chant rhymes about her murder trial, including the one that we started this podcast with in part one. Um, and they would throw rocks at her house, which is just not nice. I don't want anyone throwing rocks at my house. Yeah. Lizzie would remain unmarried for the remainder of her life as well. But despite this, she had a vibrant social life because she don't need no man. She's a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. With an independent fortune. She, she That helps. Always be independent. If you want to be independent, begin with independent wealth. But Lizzie was a frequent traveler and she spent a lot of her time in Providence, Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. She was particularly fond of entertainments like live theater and fine dining and tried to go up there as often as she could. She also followed in her father's entrepreneurial footsteps, buying up several commercial properties and growing her wealth. Um, she owned utilities, she owned property, she was basically playing Monopoly. Lizzie would make headlines again four years after her acquittal when she was accused of shoplifting in Providence, Rhode Island, just going full Winona Ryder. But she was never actually charged for the offense. And in fairness to Lizzie, it appears that it's possible this was a misunderstanding. It was very common for wealthy ladies at that time to buy on credit and simply have the bill sent to their homes or their address. In those days, it was uncouth for upper-crust ladies to be doing something as demeaning as handling money. Despite her notoriety, Lizzie made a large circle of new friends in her travels and was fond of throwing lavish parties for her friends in her 14-room mansion. I would, too. That's a, that's a fun place to be. Yeah, and I mean, like, money can make a lot of people ignore shit you've done in the past. Right. Or even just were accused of. I mean, being accused of murder gets you a whole new circle of friends these days. There's, you know, there's some popular people getting letters in jail. But one notable guest in particular was a woman named Nance O'Neill, a Broadway and silent film actress of the time. 30-year-old Nance O'Neill met 44-year-old Lizzie Borden in Boston in 1904, and the two quickly became very close. Some would say too close. Someone would say cloth-spinning buddies. Lesbians. Seamstresses. Is that, a, is that a euphemism for lesbian, or you just don't like sewing machines? Uh, it's a euphemism for prostitute in Terry Pratchett's uh, Discworld. Oh, I like that. That's an esoteric reference. Hmm. Um, They're seamstresses. Hem, hem. Hem, hem, hem. Rumors began to spread in the community that Lizzie and Nance were <gasps> lesbians. Lesbian lovers. I said it. Clean out your ears. 
Emma and Liz, who had been one another's staunchest supporters their entire lives, had a falling out in 1904. Emma moved out of Maplecroft, their shared home, in 1905. Neither of the sisters ever gave a specific reason for the falling out, but Emma later told a Boston newspaper, quote, The happenings at the French Street house that caused me to leave I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable, which I take to mean lesbian stuff. There was just, They were just lesbianing all over the house, and she could not have it. The sisters would never reconcile for the rest of their lives, even after the relationship between Lizzie and Nance came to an end several years after Emma left the home. Lizzie Borden fell ill in the final year of her life and had to have her gallbladder removed. She never really bounced back, and she passed away from complications of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927, at the age of 66. Her sister died nine days after her from kidney disease in a nursing home in New Hampshire. Despite their 23-year estrangement, the sisters were buried right next to each other beside their murdered father in the family plot in Fall River. Your family, whether you like it or not, get in the ground. You're, whether you like it, you're just, you're snuggling for all eternity. Scooch over a titch your sister's coming into. You could never escape each other in life, and now you and Elver escape each other in death. I will turn this plot around. The family that rots together, rots together. Yeah, I think I think that's the end of the story. Yeah, they I mean it was and it was a nice gravestone. She specifically paid to have a really nice monument on her father's grave. Fuck Abby, she can have a she gets a rock, I guess. Um but Andrew gets a nice a nice monument. I labeled her corpse. Be thankful. <laughs> she has a name and a year and she is in the ground and not being eaten by wolves. What more do you want from me? Or, or she's no longer on a board in my dining room. Um, just slowly going into rigor mortis. So as we've mentioned, Borden died a wealthy woman. At her death, she was worth over $250,000 in contemporary money, which totals to more than $5 million in today's money. Although I haven't checked inflation yet, it's probably $6 million by now since we started this podcast. $7 million by the time we ended. I know. At the time you're listening, we're like well over twelve. Lizzie Borden willed $30,000 of her money to an animal rights charity, and the rest of her money and jewelry was bequeathed to friends, cousins, her longtime lawyer, and her servants. Her sister notably received nothing. Lizzie actually specified in her will that Emma was to get nothing from her estate, as she had already had her share of their father's money and she was meant to be living on that. $500 from her estate was left in trust to the city of Fall River and was for the perpetual upkeep of her father's grave. That ended the life of Lizzie Borden, but it didn't end the fascination with her murder trial. So, like many other historical tales, the story of Lizzie Borden and the Borden family axe murders has been reshaped and retold over the years to make more sense in contemporary tellings and to reflect the issues of the day. So in the 1950s and 1960s, at kind of the dawn of second wave feminism, Lizzie's story was reframed to make her into kind of a feminist hero. Depictions from that era often place a lot of emphasis on the impact of gender roles in Lizzie's life, because a woman of her social class at that time had no option to be independent. She could live under her father's thumb or she could be married. So the narrative at that time, in the 50s and 60s, really moved away from this idea of tensions between upper-class, lower-class Protestant Catholics and the money aspect of the crime, and it really bought into this idea that 
Lizzie had longed for her freedom and she wanted to be an independent woman and she wanted to wear high heels. Who knows what she wanted to do? Anything. She wanted to just not drift aimlessly around her father's home like some sort of Pac-Man ghost. Um, Yeah. I love the transition from, like, Lizzie definitely didn't do it, how dare you, to Lizzie definitely did it and she was right to do it for feminism. A quote from a 1950s book on the case reads, Quote, if today woman has come out of the kitchen, she is only following Lizzie, who came out of it with a bloody axe and helped start the Rights for Women bandwagon. I'm not actually sure that that was the outcome of the Borden murders. I don't think it advanced the cause of women's rights. Yeah, like, no, Lizzie Borden directly, through the symbolism of chopping her father's eyeball in half and killing another woman... Like and, and just all all the women around her just like picked up on that like particular airwave like a bunch of ants and just asked for voting rights. Yeah, I don't I don't think women in Fall River started rallying around with hatchets, just like threatening their husbands and fathers, like you will give me voting, I will chop out your eyeballs. Like I don't think that that was the outcome of this case, but again, it feels it feels like a bit of a bank shot. It's very easy to sculpt historical narratives into what you want to hear. So similarly, depictions from the 1980s and the 1990s at the height of what became known as the daycare sex abuse mass hysteria. So this, in the 80s and 90s, if you didn't live through them, parents and the media were just obsessed with this idea that kids were just, the people were just touching kids left and right. Everybody was getting molested. Specifically, Satanists that were just like suspiciously homosexual that worked at schools yep. were definitely molesting kids in tunnels beneath the school that no one had ever found. And, uh, I mean, this ruined lives. Like, what ended up happening was that parents were so hysterical about this. Like, they were so afraid that their kids were getting molested that they inadvertently coached their children to report molestation. Because it's very easy to coach a three or four year old to say what you want. They would be like, did anybody touch you at daycare today? Did somebody touch you inappropriately? You can definitely do it by accident. Well, they would keep asking and asking and asking until the kid would finally say, like, yes, because the clear kids want to please their parents. Of course. And when you... I actually specifically went to school for forensic psychology and was trained in doing forensic examinations of children. Uh, don't ask them questions more than once, because if they... If you ask a child of that age a question multiple times it signals to the child that they're not giving you the response that you're looking for and the only thing kids want to do at that age is please adults um so when you ask a kid over and over they're eventually going to try a different answer to see if that's what you want and if you respond to that and you're like oh my goodness like tell me more uh it teaches the kid that that's what you wanted to hear so you you can it's very easy to inadvertently coach kids that are like three you can accidentally train children to tell you they've been diddled and it happens a lot in that like three to six ish age range where like you still have emergent language it's very easy to coach this so what ended up happening in the 1980s and 1990s is that people very much accidentally coached their children into reporting abuse that wasn't ultimately happening you know not that there was zero cases of of daycare sexual abuse but like people were going to jail for this left and right and many 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 people were exonerated after spending years in prison 
for crimes that didn't actually happen. So it was it was just a, it was constantly in the media. It was constantly in the news. Parents were just like bombarded with this message that you need to like ask your kids every day if like someone's trying to steal their penis. Like that's which they are. They're trying to steal your penis. Mother wants your penis. Yes, everybody's penis stealing. Mother wants your penis. Um, so amongst kind of this cultural backdrop, the narrative when people are retelling the Lizzie Borden story becomes like, this is a story of a victim of sexual abuse, which was not a, a component that was part of the story leading up to this. We're, we're almost a hundred years out at this point. Again, reflecting the, the fears and the priorities of the day, writers retelling the Lizzie Borden story around this time begin to raise and promote the theory that Andrew Borden had been molesting Lizzie that the two were in some kind of incestuous power dynamic relationship and that Lizzie had murdered him to escape from the abuse, which is a narrative that would that made more sense in that decade. So a lot of details about the case that would have been very innocuous at the time that they happened, like in the 1800s, Andrew Borden receiving a gold ring as a gift from Lizzie and wearing it as his only jewelry, there being a connecting door between Lizzie and Andrew's rooms, like things people would not have thought twice about in the 1800s in the 1990s were suddenly framed as suspicious indicators of sexual abuse. Uh, this is this is just what the 90s were like, kids. If you grew up at that time, you just constantly got told everybody wanted to kidnap and molest you. I'm sure it had no long-term lingering effects. Like just a pandemonious howling everywhere and anywhere about how you were definitely going to get fucked by an adult. Yeah, there was just like, I, I mean, I was a child in the 90s. There was just like a lot of weird conversations about how like adults were going to drive up in vans and ask you to get in and look for a puppy. Like there was a lot of like, people are going to offer you free candy. Do not get in the van. Don't, there is no candy. Full on stranger danger. No mention of the fact that you're most likely to get molested by a close relative. Yeah, they've kind of abandoned this approach to, like, child safety because of this, because they're like, oh, it's actually pretty unusual for a stranger to rock up with a van and start loading kids into it, like the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's actually not how most child abductions work. Extremely um, unusual. So, child abuse prevention today largely looks like teaching kids to communicate about their bodies, teaching kids healthy boundaries, um, educating parents on the fact that, like, abuse tends to be a person you know. So it's it's educating people on how it actually works, but in the in the 90s just everybody was just everyone was coming out and molest your child. It was that's just how it was. Just roving gangs of pedophiles. Um and then we grew into teenagers and our parents let us go on chat roulette. We were not safe on the internet. Absolutely not. <laughs> we grew up afraid of feral pedophiles stalking the streets. Little did we know that they were all in the box in the computer room. Yeah, like, we, as children, we spent many an hour, like, just on, like, chat roulette, like, websites that let you video chat with strangers. Like, it was not safe at all. Granted, the, the knowledge and the evidence gathering in the 1800s of sexual abuse is not what it was today. But this is kind of the first time when the story is being retold that this emerges. So, the problem with the story is that it's reframed based on what's happening at the time that it's being written we we always do this. We see historical events through the lens of the world we currently live in. So, for instance, over time, a lot of the original context in this case about the tensions between the working class Catholic population and the upper class American Protestant population in Fall River has disappeared from retellings. 
that's just not really relevant to our daily lives in 2022. Not yet. We could return to full-blown Protestant Catholic wars any time. But at the moment, we're good. And this staunch divide between, like, entrenched American Protestant landed gentry class and, like, working class Irish coming over... Like, that whole historical context isn't relevant anymore, so even though it really had a big impact on the trial of the investigation... It fades into the background. It fades into the background, at least of, like, popular media. If you're reading a really well-researched historical book about the case, it will definitely go over this, but for, for popular media depictions, that kind of fades into the background. Also, fun fact, if you look at the list of the media depictions of Lizzie Borden, there's, like, some made-for-TV movies. There's some... some She appears in a bunch of TV shows and documentaries. Um, but there have been a truly bizarre number of attempts to turn this story into, like, some sort of musical stage production. And they've almost all done really poorly. They've all closed on, like, day three. People what are like... shock. Lizzie Borden the musical. Not not a lot of demand for that. Who knew? I mean, it's a little morbid. And I mean, how many how many rhymes are there for Schmesbian? <laughs> Just one that I know of. So what what rhymes with prosecutorial incompetence? I really don't know. Um, police misconduct? That's a hard one to rhyme with. But yeah, so after after all of this, you've now sat through a very lengthy series of podcasts on Lizzie Borden. Uh, there's kind of one question that everybody wants to know, which is, did Lizzie do it? To which the answer is, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Nobody does. Lizzie Borden officially remains the prime suspect in the Borden Borden double homicide, but realistically, it's never going to be closed. She also can't be retried because A, she's dead, and B, that would be in violation of double jeopardy. She's already been acquitted for the crime. Uh, But mostly she's dead, and so is everybody who ever cared about this case uh, when they were alive. Death is a pretty big barrier. Double jeopardy, I grant you, but death is a lot. I mean, double jeopardy is a pretty important... That's enshrined in the Fifth Amendment, but uh, this one's also... Death is a pretty big one, too. I've got a shovel. Let's make some magic happen. There are some alternative suspects in this case. Some of them are genuinely two bananas to justify with airtime. Aliens show up and do it. The Portuguese. Um, But some... The Portuguese are just sort of a lingering threat. Portuguese aliens? But probably the most interesting alternate suspects are, um, one, the idea that Lizzie and Maggie committed the murders together. So one theory states that Lizzie and Bridget Maggie Sullivan were secretly having, and, you know, close your good Catholic ears, a lesbian affair. (gasps) Lesbians. And she swears? My goodness. The Borden, the theory goes that the Borden parents had either found out about the two women's affair or that they were in danger of finding out about them, and so the women murdered them together to prevent them from outing the affair and to prevent them from writing Lizzie out of the will. So, adorably, some historians discount this theory on the basis that Bridget couldn't be a lesbian as she later married a man uh, that's adorable. in Montana. That's You're adorable. Cute. That's very cute. Bless your heart. No, no, no. She touched a cock. She stole a penis. She's straight now. Another theory states that Bridget slash Maggie, the maid, committed the murders on her own. The motive on this one is a little bit harder to pin down because this didn't make Maggie's life better at all. She's not appearing in the will. No, she's not in the will, and like even even the way things shook out, like she left town after the after the trial. She ends up in Montana. 
Some have suggested that maybe she was just sort of sick of Abby's nonsense and that Abby making her wash all of the windows on kind of a hot day was the last straw. She was like, you know what? A time to kill everybody. I don't know about that one. Uh, It runs into a lot of the same problems. It's a very violent attack to be set off by windows. Another and perhaps more interesting theory states that the murderer was John Vinicum Morse. Lizzie's uncle, who spent the night at the home before the murders. So Morse was actually a butcher by trade and always carried a meat cleaver with him. Oh, Just, fascinating. Just, you know, for, for luck, I guess. Not a weird thing to do. He was also in conflict with Andrew Borden at the time of the murders. Well, that's why they're having business meetings. Yeah, they're having business meetings. So the two men had a livestock business together, and Borden reportedly was very angry with Morse for the fact that it was losing money. Morse also reportedly didn't get along with Abby because she was apparently just generally unpleasant and hard to get along with. She is the woman your business partner replaced your sister with. Yeah, you know. And apparently she's also just, like, not- she's not a warm, fuzzy person. She's she's just kind of there. I mean, the only person I have any evidence who liked her is Andrew Borden, so, like, I mean, there you go. <laughs> Actually, like, it's it appears that, like, he he didn't. It It's- Oh, um, good! So no one liked this woman. A lot of the writing on this case, it kind of frames it as a marriage of convenience, where um, she was kind of getting up there in age when they married, so Lizzie and Emma's mother dies unexpectedly of a medical issue. Andrew needs a mother for his children. Abby is getting... I need a replacement. You are technically female. I need... Yeah, he's like, I need a mother Raise for these my kids. Spawn. I got caskets to sell. I don't have time to babysit. Abby is reportedly getting up there in age um, to the point where people are starting to worry about her marriage prospects. She wants security. It's kind of a marriage of convenience. Again, everybody who knows the answer to, like, for sure what their marriage was like is dead and has been for some time, but that's that's what the writings suggest. Morse, who was, yes, who was Lizzie's mother's brother, he reportedly did not get along with Abby, he just found her unpleasant. Um, so the theory goes that John got into some kind of altercation with Abby. Basically, they had a bad morning where... Andrew got very upset with him and blamed him for their business dealings failing. Um, So John then proceeds to get into some kind of altercation with Abby and finally lost his temper, striking her with his meat cleaver. The theory goes that the investigators confused what was actually heavy-duty butcher's cleaver wounds for hatchet wounds as they look very similar and it's kind of a case of hearing hoof prints and thinking horse, not zebra. Everybody owned a hatchet in those days. It was not common to own the sort of heavy-duty butcher's cleaver that a butcher would have. So the theory goes that John either returned to the house later or snuck upstairs and came back down later. Um, But he manages to also finish off Andrew. John was one of the few people who would have known that the side screen door was unsecured. He knew the layout of the home. And he's also somebody that Abby would not have been startled to find in her house. They think that she saw her attacker and she didn't scream. So they they think the attacker would have had to be somebody she wasn't startled to see. And John was staying with them at the time. He frequently did. John also reportedly gave a suspiciously detailed alibi that he just had, like, ready to go at questioning. They found that part odd. He was also inconsistent of the in the details of his story. 
saying he had mailed, for instance, a letter at one location that he had actually mailed from a different location. And at one point, he was considered an official suspect in the murders before they focused their attentions on Lizzie. So, you know, not entirely out of the question. Um, Another fun twist on this theory goes that John was having an affair with Bridget slash Maggie the maid. Apparently Fall River's sexiest maid. Everybody's just having affairs with her. In all of the theories. Everybody's fucking the maid. I don't know what's up. Everyone wants the maid. I suppose the maid's the only person who's not related to anyone else. They're just like, somebody's fucking. This is a, this is a crime that involves somebody fucking somebody, and it's it's it just has to. So John frequently stayed over at the house, and there was a guest room on the second floor, but John preferred to sleep up on the third floor. There was an unused bedroom on the third floor across from Bridget's room, and there was nobody else up there. It was literally just Bridget's room, this unused bedroom, and nothing. The theory goes that he slept up there all the time because he was having an affair with the maid, and this was a way to not get caught. But this theory goes he may have snuck back into the house to spend time with Bridget, and then, you know, just somehow ended up killing a family, as uh, yeah. as yeah. you do. Interesting. What does the maid part add here? <laughs> I don't really know. A reason to come back to the house, I guess, but that's that's a theory that has been written. Um, both John and Maggie kind of went to ground after the trial, so they both left the state of Massachusetts entirely and never returned. Uh, John ended up in Idaho, I believe. But uh, yeah, that is that is the gist of the Lizzie Borden murder case. I have given you many hours of information about the case and we're no closer to solving it but now at least yeah you know all the fun details and that's that's really what it's all about here draw your own conclusions make your own fun the maid did it yeah the dog did it ship her with everyone everyone was having affair with the maid every single person the like lizzie emma mrs borden mr borden John Morse, the doctor, the milkman, the the the, the neighbor, neighbor, the milkman, the the, the mutton. spinster next door, everybody, the mutton, everybody, everybody's fucking the maid, the swordfish, sexiest maid in Massachusetts. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I have been Jessica, and I have been Janelle. This has been histories and mysteries. <laughs>